Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Matthew Levine. I'm a practicing endocrinologist and the Endocrinology Fellowship Program Director at Scripps Clinic in San Diego, California. I would like to welcome everybody this afternoon to the ACE podcast entitled Pertinent Topics in Thyroid Cancer Management. With me this afternoon for the podcast is Dr. Mike Tuttle. Dr. Tuttle is the Acting Chief of Endocrinology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he has practiced since 1999. His practice is focused exclusively around patients with thyroid cancer, and his interest within this is on risk stratification. The flow of today's podcast will attempt to recreate the decision-making process that the practicing endocrinologist usually faces during the course of management of patients with thyroid cancer. Dr. Tuttle, thank you for being here this afternoon. Thanks very much, Matthew. Looking forward to it. My first question to kick off the podcast is, when is simple monitoring or active surveillance of a diagnosed thyroid cancer appropriate? And along those lines, when might surgery not be needed for patients? Uh, That's such a great question. I mean, who would have thought five years ago we would even ask that question, right? I mean, you had cancer, you go to surgery. And now we're to the point where we have to ask, boy, do we need to do a biopsy? Do we need to make the diagnosis of cancer? And if we do, do we need surgery? So I would say selectively or probably very selectively. Because if you do biopsies on nodules that need to be treated, bigger than a centimeter, centimeter and a half, pretty much every biopsy proven papillary cancer in that situation is gonna deserve surgery. So it's really the ones that get biopsied that you'd say, wow, did that even really need a biopsy? It's an older person, it's less than a centimeter, it's really small, where in your heart of hearts you're saying, boy, do I really need to do that treatment? So to my mind, it really is less than a centimeter confined to the thyroid, no abnormal lymph nodes, not sitting on the edge of the thyroid about to grow outside the capsule. Those would be the ones that we at least think about. Now, even when you think about it, um, in our practice, I'm pretty aggressive at active surveillance. We've got 500 patients that we're following with no surgery. But out of everybody I offer that to, about half of them choose that they think that's a good idea. Okay, I'll watch. The other half say, nice talk. How fast can you get me to a surgeon? because everybody's different and some people want it treated, some people don't. So I think the key is being really selective about that. And really right now, less than one centimeter. After some experience, you can go up to like one and a half centimeters if they're confined to the thyroid. But I think being really selective about that so that, you know, we don't want to undertreat people while we're trying not to overtreat people. And if I may ask a follow-up question to that, how often will you monitor somebody in whom you're pursuing active surveillance? Yeah. So our general approach is if I think you're a good candidate for active surveillance, we'll do an ultrasound about every six months for two years. Not every six months. Now, if I'm honest with you, if the first two or three are rock solid stable and it's a four millimeter nodule, I might stretch that out. But my general approach is every six months for two years, measure thyroid function test, just TSH and free T4 once a year for two years. 
we don't want to do TSH suppression in these guys, but you want to avoid excess TSH stimulation, right? If their TSH is three or four or five, we wouldn't want that. After two years, we take a line in the sand and look back and say, okay, how are we doing? If everything's rock solid, stable, then it's once a year for a while. If it's slowly growing, then we make the decision, all right, when do you want to have surgery? You know, if you're 55, do you want to have it when you're 55 or when you're 65? Because if it's slowly growing, we have to think about that. But that gives people a chance to sort of say, all right, I don't have to decide I'm going to watch forever. I'm going to watch for six-month intervals. I tell people I reserve the right to change my mind every six months. They can change their mind anytime they want to if they get uncomfortable with watching. And one of the ways I'll often present it to these patients that are good candidates for this, I'll start the consult by saying, we're gonna choose between two right answers. One right answer is surgery, and one right answer is observation. Because everybody wants a right and a wrong. And in these people that are good for observation, they're also pretty good for a lobectomy. So I try to help them frame that in terms of, here's two right answers, and we'll spend the next 30 minutes talking about the pros and cons, the risks and benefits. Tell me about your values, where you're going to get your ultrasound, where you're going to get your follow-up, all that sort of stuff. And at the end of the visit, we go, okay, we've explored both answers. Here's what I would do if I was in your situation. Here's what I think I would do if you were my daughter, if you're my kid. But just like my kids, you're going to tell me what you really want to do. So to try to frame it that way. Okay, now let's presume surgical resection is felt to be appropriate. How do we best determine the extent of surgery that should be recommended to our patients? Yeah, remember when this wasn't complicated? When everybody got a total thyroidectomy, everybody got radioactive iodine? It was much easier. The visits were much shorter. It wasn't anything hard about that. Now we've made it really hard. And we made it really hard because we said, well, not everybody needs radioactive iodine. And we'll come to that in a minute. But the logic is a lot of people were getting total thyroidectomies purely because they were getting radioactive iodine. There was no other logic for it. And that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just you didn't need a, an excuse for it. Everybody was getting radioactive iodine. Now in that more selective world, people began saying, well, if you're not going to do radioactive iodine, how do you select the people that could benefit from a less aggressive surgery? Now, I tell the patients, I'm not really going to know whether a lobectomy is your right operation until a few weeks after surgery. A lot of people find that very uncomfortable because I tell them there's sort of three decision points. One, before we do the surgery, based on everything I know about the ultrasounds and the scans and everything, I think you'd be a good candidate for a lobectomy. That decision may change in the operating room. So I love to have people consent for low bore total, pick a really good surgeon. And if the surgeon finds things in the operating room that we all know that we'd want a total thyroidectomy, we change our mind right there and you wake up with no thyroid. But then the third decision point is a couple weeks after surgery when you get the PATH report. Because every once in a while around here, it's about 6% of the time. We guess pretty good before surgery, but 6% of the time you end up having to go back for surgery. Primarily because there's like vascular invasion on the PATH report that we didn't anticipate or a poorly differentiated, there was no way to know. Now, how often you go back depends on how aggressive you are with radioactive iodine. There are other centers that publish 20, 25% of the time you have to have a completion. And that's because the least little bit of extra thyroid extension, the most least small tall cell, all those little factors, they would want radioactive iodine for that patient. 
So when you think about this as a group, it's not just the surgeon deciding lobectomy or total. You have to look at what's the role of radioactive iodine in your center. And if you're giving radioactive iodine to most people, then lobectomy is probably not going to be very useful for you. On the other hand, if you're a center like ours that's always been very minimalistic, very lobectomy, don't use a lot of radioactive iodine, we're going to find that lobectomy much more, you know, reasonable because we're not going to do completion. So I think for the patients, when I'm telling them about if lobectomy is going to be the right thing to do, they have to know it's those three decision points before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery. And honestly, we've both seen patients that go, no way, doc, you're putting me asleep one time. I'm picking a high volume surgeon. I've read Dr. Google. I, you got one shot at it. And I think that's perfectly fine. Thank you. And you touched upon this a moment ago in your answer, but uh, is there a way to summarize how the decision should be made about whether additional treatment, namely radioactive iodine, should be administered, presuming, of course, that a total thyroidectomy, I suppose, has been performed. Yeah. So we've used some language where we talk about people as like ideal, appropriate, or inappropriate, what we call minimalistic therapy. So we actually use that language starting before we do the biopsy, before they have surgery. So by minimalistic management, we mean everything from just observation to lobectomy or total with no radioactive iodine. So we've written several papers where we sort of, these are the, the ideal characteristics of somebody that would be good for minimalistic management. So it's a papillary cancer, one or two centimeters confined to the thyroid, no lymph node metastasis, nothing worrisome about that at all. Honestly, lobectomy or total thyroidectomy, that, that patient's gonna do fine. The only way you can damage their overall survival is have them fly back to New York too many times for a follow-up visit because there's a definite mortality for coming back into the city every day. So the cancer is not gonna kill them. We gotta make sure our follow-up doesn't kill them. And then there's the opposite end that everybody would agree they need radioactive iodine, you know, more aggressive tumors and gross extrathyroid extension and clinical N1 disease, not just little lymph nodes, like, you know, the stuff we used to diagnose with our hands, big volume lymph nodes or distant metastasis. Everybody agrees about that. And then there's that medical group that we call appropriate. Doesn't make it right or wrong. And it's sort of up to how aggressive the patient wants to be, how aggressive you want to be. It's actually a lot more than just the path report. Because it does with, you know, do you know the surgeon that did the surgery? How good was that decision-making in there? How good's your thyroid globulin assay? If you can read really low thyroid globulins, that makes you feel comfortable. How good's your ultrasound follow-up? If you got phenomenal ultrasound people, then you'll be more comfortable not using radioactive iodine. If your patient has to go to every ultrasound person in the county and you don't know where it's coming from, well, that's going to make you lean more toward radioactive iodine. So I think about this decision about radioactive iodine, not just in, am I going to decrease recurrence, not just in, do I need it to facilitate follow-up, but within the context of where the patient's being seen, that that would drive, because I see people that sometimes are going back to different countries, and I know they're not going to have great that kind of follow-up. I know their endocrinologists are only going to be able to follow them with total thyroid and radioactive iodine. And so unless they're the ultimate low-risk patient, then I'll say, well, you're appropriate. And here's why I think you should do that. If you lived across the street from me and you're going to be seen at our center for the next 20 years, no, you'd probably have another option. And then lastly, I think is integrating the patient's perspective. What are their goals? We all see patients that say, look, I want you to do everything. 
I had a nurse practitioner with me for 10 years and we get to see every exception here, right? No matter what it is, it's here. So she told me one day if she had a papillary microcarcinoma, she wanted total thyroidectomy, radioactive iodine, probably external beam radiation and at least a couple shots of chemo. And her point was, I don't want to take any chances, right? I want you to treat me like crazy. Now, most patients don't go that far, but there are people that perceive even a small benefit of radioactive iodine is helpful like knowing the scans and making the thyroglobin undetectable. And maybe I personally wouldn't do it, but they would. So I try to be sensitive to sort of what their goals are. I try to be realistic. You know, somebody yesterday said, I want radioactive iodine, so I have a 0% recurrence rate. And I said, well, back the train up. I wish I could do that too. I can't. I might lower your recurrence rate, but I can't take it to zero. If I could take it to zero, it'd be a different ballpark. So setting realistic expectations for them, having them understand the risk and benefits, I think puts us in good shape. And as a follow-up question, if one does decide to give radioactive iodine, what dose should we recommend? In oh, good Lord, we don't know. Um, but we make it up every time, right? I mean, you would think uh, since the 1940s, we've been using radioactive iodine and somebody would have done a study that shows what the right dose are. So you can make up anything that you want. So what do I really do? So in real practicality, if somebody really does not need radioactive iodine in terms of not decreasing recurrence, I'm not worried about them dying, but they want to facilitate follow-up. They want a good whole body scan. They want sort of complete staging. We call that remnant ablation, and that would be about 30 millicuries. That's plenty to destroy the thyroid remnant. You can do it with thyrogen. It's a very straightforward procedure. And I don't think I hurt anybody with 30 millicuries. Other people we talk about using for adjuvant therapy. Now, now this is an oncology term. And adjuvant therapy means you're treating a risk. We've all probably had family members with breast cancer or colon cancer or some other cancer. And the surgeon takes everything out. But they say, look, there's a chance that you may have a recurrence. And we want to give you some extra treatments for that. Now, many of those patients are being overtreated, but you don't know, but you're helping some people. And we use radioactive iodine in the same way. Papillary cancer, 15 lymph nodes in the neck, uh, half of them are positive. The surgeon thinks he got them all. The post-op thyroglobulin is only one, so they probably did get them all, but we don't know. But in that case, we're using radioactive iodine as basically our chemotherapy. We're treating that risk. And in those guys, I tend to give about 100 millicuries. I used to give more like 150, 200. I don't now that I have gray hair. I dried out a lot of salivary glands. I'm really good at blocked tear ducts. So side effects, if you have any questions about radioactive iodine, I did it. I know all those. So I think by and large now, for most people, I'm either giving 30 or 100. If they have distant metastasis, then sometimes I'm up in the 150 or 200. But I bet the bulk of my patients I treat these days is either 30 for the people that I don't think need it for a cancer reason and just to facilitate follow-up, and 100 if I'm doing adjuvant therapy. Let's shift gears here for a bit and talk about thyroid hormone administration. How do we decide going forward what the target TSH should be for management of individual patients? That's a great question. And again, that's a question we wouldn't have asked 10 or 15 years ago. You know, I was taught, get the TSH undetectable, leave it there for 100 years. The only trouble was that was 1990 and we couldn't measure TSH less than one. So undetectable, maybe not so bad. Today, we can measure really, really low. So I do it in sort of two decision points. One, I make the initial TSH goals after the first surgery. 
You look at the pathology report. If you've done radioactive iodine, you look at that. You look at the post-op thyroglobulin and say, okay, what's your risk of recurrence? For the vast majority of patients that we classify as low or intermediate risk, I keep their TSH around 0.5. And I tell them 0.5-ish, a little bit below, a little bit above. I don't give them exact numbers because otherwise it's 0.51 and they call me like to fix it, right? So most of my folks for the first year or thereabouts, I keep the TSH just a little bit below the normal range. And then if you've had what we call an excellent response or you're in remission, Maybe you get an ultrasound, that's fine. TG stays undetectable. They don't have any evidence of cancer. Then we let that TSH float up to around one or one and a half. Long-term for most of those patients, as long as they don't have distal metastasis, I think our goal these days is less TSH suppression and more avoiding excess TSH stimulation. Because there's not any real data that says, should the TSH be more than one or 1.5? We love things that are 0.5 because we have five fingers and five toes and everything is base 10 and five, right? Because guess what? If we had six fingers, I'd be saying, well, it'd be 0.6. So there's nothing magic to it. But I think these days, we now, I think, appreciate much better the side effects of subclinical hyperthyroidism and heart problems and, and bone problems and those sorts of stuff are real. So hardly ever do I keep somebody totally suppressed anymore. Thank you. My final question involves the proper means of surveillance. So how do you recommend surveillance be performed on patients whom we've treated? And do you recommend imaging, and I suppose I should clarify that by asking what type of imaging, be performed as part of that surveillance? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, we've moved from that one size fits all where everybody gets the same follow-up. Since it's just the two of us talking and nobody can hear us, when I was trained, I was trained to do a radioactive iodine scan once a year for five years. Thank God our patients wouldn't do that. You know, we'd have to tell them and they'd say, forget that because it was hypothyroidism. Now it's a very risk-adapted approach. So if you were a low-risk patient and you've done great for a year or two, my follow-up is just going to be a thyroid globulin in my hands. That's because their risk of recurrence is 2 or 3%. The risk of false positives on an ultrasound and the best of hands, I mean, in our hands, it was almost 40%. We're pretty good at it. So I tell these patients, I don't think you need ultrasounds forever for the rest of your life. People go, well, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, yeah, I do. It's called 1960, 1970, 1980. We didn't have a, a huge group of these low-risk people dying on our hands when we were following with our hands. So we actually do know what happens without tons of ultrasound in them. So the low-risk patients, and in fact, most of the intermediate-risk patients that have an excellent response are going to be seen every year or two. After that first year or two where you, where you know what they're doing, every year or two with a TSH and a thyroid globulin, and that's really it. As you get up into sort of the more intermediate or higher risk patients, then those people I will follow with ultrasounds and CT scans. And, and of course, it's different if they've got an abnormal thyroid globulin that keeps rising or they didn't go into remission to begin with. Then more imaging, maybe follow-up radioactive iodine scans and those guys. But the majority of our patients do really well after that first surgery with or without radioactive iodine, and they don't have any evidence of recurrence within that first year or two. And if they don't, I think we really need to back off on those guys. And honestly, I send most of them back to their primary care doctors or their regular diabetes, regular general endocrinologists that they were seeing them, get them out of the center, tell them to stop acting like a cancer patient, go be normal, and just follow primarily that thyroglobin over the years. 
Well, thank you, Mike, for a very thorough answering of questions during today's podcast. For listeners who are desiring further information about uh, thyroid cancer and its management, I would direct you to the website of the American Thyroid Association, which does feature guidelines for the management of adults with differentiated thyroid cancer. I thank everybody for listening and have a good afternoon. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.